Hi everyone, this is Andreas and welcome to Green Minds Podcast. Really happy to have you here and I believe that we have another great episode for you. We are also halfway through this spring term and so good luck for all CCMF students with the group projects, deadlines, and presentations. In this episode, I will be speaking with Honorio Poblador or Nori, the co-founder and managing partner of Navigar, a Philippine-focused private equity firm. To date, Navigar has raised two private equity funds. One was a $120 million fund raised in 2012, and the second one was $190 million raised in 2020. Now, before we go into my conversation with Nori, I want to start with this. If you ever travel through the Middle East region airport, say in Doha or Abu Dhabi, and you stop by at one of the duty-free shops inside the airport, there is a good chance that you will have a Filipino working there as store associate. Same thing if you go to the hotels in that region as well as many other regions in the world. You may likely interact with Filipino workers in this hospitality industry. In the Philippines, these migrant workers are called Overseas Filipino Workers or OFW. They work not only in hospitality services, but also in other sectors, engineering, healthcare, and various others. How many of the overseas Filipino workers are there across the world? You will know the answer later in this podcast, and I think you would be pretty surprised. Also, if you ever make calls to customer service representative to e-commerce such as Amazon or online travel agent like Expedia, you may actually be speaking with an outsourced staff who is based in Manila or somewhere else in the Philippines. Even your credit card application to banks in UK or US may also actually be processed by outsourced staff in the Philippines. This concept is called Business Process Outsourcing, or BPO, in which third-party companies will provide outsourced business services to various companies like banks, e-commerce, ride-sharing, etc. And BPO is a big and high-growth sector in the Philippines. How big it is? You will also hear about it in this podcast. Now, I want to emphasize these two things, overseas Filipino workers, OFW, and business process outsourcing, or BPO, because of their huge impact to the Philippines economy. I learned about OFW and BPO when I led the investment of IFC into Navigar in 2012 when they raised their first fund. And I found it very unique and fascinating. So you will hear much more about these two sectors from Nori and how it has also influenced Philippines' business landscape, which means that it also has affected Navigar's investment strategy. Anyway, so I hope you will enjoy this podcast and can even learn a thing or two. By the way, I should also note that you will hear the words BGC and DFIs in this podcast. 
BGC, which stands for Bonifacio Global City, is the name of a business district area in Metro Manila. DFIs is the acronym for Development Financial Institutions, and this referred to institutions like British International Investment or Asian Development Bank or International Finance Corporation. And now, here's my conversation with Navigar's managing partner, Honorio Poblador. Hi, Nori. Thanks a lot for your time. I um, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with the Green Minds podcast. As I mentioned in the opening of the podcast, you are the co-founder and the managing partner of Navigar, a Philippines-focused private equity funds. Now, for those who are not very familiar with the Philippines, Nori, how do you describe Philippines in terms of the business, the economy, to the people who are not familiar with, with the country? Hi, Andreas. First of all, thank you for, for inviting me. And it, it's a pleasure to be here. So I guess diving straight into your question, I would start to describe the Philippines by describing the population, um, because to a certain extent that dictates also the economic structure and the opportunities available and the drivers of the economy. So the Philippines has about 110 million people in its population, and it's growing maybe at one and a half percent per year. Because it's growing so fast, people, experts have described the Philippines as having the perfect demographic pyramid. So you have a number of aging people making up the top of the pyramid, and then you have um, a wide base of younger and theoretically more productive people. And because it's so young, the Philippines is seen as being able to produce or having a pipeline of productive resources for the foreseeable future, right? Which is opposite to some of the more developed countries in Europe and, and in Asia, uh, for example, Japan, right? Where there's a, an aging population where birth rates are quite low. Um, so they're having problems trying to, to provide labor and productivity as, as the population ages. So I think that being the case, it also means that the driver of the economy is, is, is domestic consumption. Because if you have a young population in an economy that I think it's over the past 15 to 20 years that has been growing at an average of between 5 and 6%. Um, you have a GDP capital increasing. So I think the economy is then driven by, by private consumption. But traditionally, and in the Philippines, I think 70% of GDP growth is contributed by domestic consumption. So you have a young labor force that knows how to consume and will continue consuming. And I think a big plus is that it's a population that can speak English. I think it's important for two reasons. And again, this helps drive domestic consumption and I think defines the Philippine economy, the, the opportunities, et cetera. 
One, because the Philippines knows our speak English and our hospitable, friendly people, it's easier for them to migrate and find work in, in other places. So there are about 10 million Filipinos that work abroad. And when they go to the developed countries, like the United States, many of them are professionals, teachers, doctors, lawyers, nurses, etc. And then there's also the service sector where you'll see entertainers, you'll see in the Middle East, shopkeepers, restaurant workers, um, workers in hospitality. So that's all a function of, I think, a young labor force that knows how to speak English and is very adaptable. Yeah, yeah, just to add uh, context also for the listeners, just to put some numbers, because I look at the median age of the Philippines. I think the last that I see is about 24 year old, the median age. And as a context for the listeners, I think Japan is probably the oldest one, has a median age of 48, Germany is 47, and UK is 40. When I look at that, I was actually very surprised to see how young yeah. the population in the Philippines, yeah. right? So basically the youth and also the ability to speak English and the hospitality aspect of it. Yeah, Nori, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, no, so I, I was just saying 10 million Filipinos abroad are generally referred to as, as OFWs. Well, another interesting fact that the Philippines also contributes, at least the last time I looked, half of all the seafarers um, that you find at any one point in time in <laughs> ships, whether they be cruise ships or cargo ships. So half the people that, that are on those ships are, are Filipinos. So anyway, it's important because uh, the OFWs, as they're known, overseas foreign, overseas foreign workers, yeah? OFW, yeah? That's correct. Overseas yeah. foreign workers. On an annual basis, they send home what's called remittances. And the remittances actually fuels domestic consumption, which as I, um, as I mentioned earlier, right, is 70% of GDP growth. And I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's probably in 2022, the number was close to $35 billion sent home by uh, overseas foreign workers, which is equivalent, yeah. Yeah, which is equivalent, I think, to 10% of GDP. Oh, wow. Okay. Very um, significant, yeah. Very significant. Um, and you know, if you think about it, the average size of the Filipino family is between five and six. So if you have 10 million Filipinos working abroad, they're supporting 50 million family members here in the Philippines. And remember, it's a population of 110. 10 of them are abroad. So basically half of the residents in the Philippines, half of the Filipino residents in the Philippines here have some sort of support from the U.S. dollars that are coming in. Yeah. And I think um, what's interesting of this OFW, because Indonesia also have some uh, migrant workers, right? And mostly would go to the Middle East, but it's mostly like domestic helpers and also obviously that low salary professions. But the Philippines, like you mentioned, right? They go abroad and they work for, of course, some of them would also work in the domestic sectors Correct. in Singapore, but also yeah. many of them are in a high added value nurses, 
doctors. Yeah. You go to the, any airports in Middle East, you see many of the Filipinos in the retail sector also. Right? I think that's also the key difference in terms of the work that this OFW yeah. are doing, right, Nori? Yeah. Correct. I, I think some of, some of the Filipinos, so basically they can do anything, right? You're right. <laughs> some of them are domestic helpers. Some of them are construction workers. Okay. Some of them manage the construction jobs in the Middle East. But yeah, then you have the service workers, then you have the professional class, right? So I think we, we span the entire gamut yeah. of professions or jobs. I think the second thing that is a result of the demographic characteristics of the Philippines, as mentioned, is the growth of the business process outsourcing industry, the BPO industry. Today, I think it employs between one and a half and two million workers. And if you count the revenues from the BPO industry, which really um, represents, for the most part, salaries paid to the, the one and a half to two million Filipinos that work here. That's another 35 billion pesos, another you know, representing 10% of, of, of total GDP. So that sector really only started growing in the Philippines in 1999 or, or 2000. So in the 20 years, it's been around. It's, it's created a lot of upwardly mobile young people. The profile of the, of the BPL worker is basically predominantly fresh grads or people who are, um, you know, four or five years into, into their work. And because That's so many of have come in, there's a lot of upward mobility. People are now managers, country managers, global executives. JP Morgan has a building in, in the new part of town that I think houses 10 to 12,000 people. Um, the one are, 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 when I did the appraisal of Navigate in 2012, <laughs> I think we did go to BGC to visit some of the business process outsourcing companies, right? And I think I saw this big JP Morgan building um, housing, what not 10,000 employees, yeah? Really? Yeah. Well, okay. you're correct. We actually visited the JP Morgan site. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, I think we were surprised to find that not only were the agents selling credit cards, telemarketing, but there was also a, a, a team there that was doing options clearing. Um, they were doing net asset value and yeah, nav calculations for, for the different fund clients of JP Morgan. So these guys are JP Morgan badged employees. And with that comes upward mobility, the chance to travel, it comes with healthcare benefits. Uh, traditionally, Philippine companies have been slow to adopt giving healthcare as a standard benefit for employees. But because all of these BPO companies that have established here are competing for talent, then everyone has started giving healthcare benefits. And that's why one of the investee companies was um, Navigar One was uh, was it in telecare, right? Like, yeah. The healthcare insurers, yeah. um, because we felt that that sector would continue to grow, and therefore, health private insurance penetration, healthcare insurance penetration would continue to grow. Yes, I I don't know if that that gives the listeners a flavor um, of of the Philippines. 
Yeah. It does. It does. Great. And I want to talk a little bit more about the BPO, business process outsourcing, because I think that's one thing that I found very fascinating, actually, right? When I did that appraisal, I think you uh, mentioned that it was a game changer also for the Philippines. Can you talk a little bit more? Let's go back quickly in 1999. If I remember correctly, I think the BPO started at that time more of a traditional call center, was it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so in, in 1999, there were very few seats uh, um, in the Philippines. I think uh, Philippines didn't invent BPO, right? Mm. I think um, Ireland was a destination for business process outsourcing way before the Philippines was. And I think the, the kinds of services provided by the companies that were, were directory assistance. So it's someone calling from uh, a payphone in yeah. New York saying, hey, can I have the number of Andrea Silverio sit um, in Washington, D.C.? Yeah. Uh, and the agent in this side of the world would then <laughs> check his computer, type in the name, and, and get uh, the number. Right. Uh, so the services that were first provided were as basic as now. Today, that it's changed, right? Automation has basically taken all of that business away. So the kinds of work that the DPO sector is doing now is quite uh, more complex. Yeah. You mentioned in JP Morgan, some of them are doing credit card sales, but also the NAV evaluation. Yeah. What are other services in the BPO uh, that you have now in the Philippines, Nori, besides um, this banking, for instance? Yeah, I, I think it's anything you can think about that can be provided by anyone off-site. Because in the past, BPO was also geared to um, to service companies' requirements where it was a single process or a defined process that, you know, it's repetitive tasks. Mm -hmm. um, but I think with the advent of, of the cloud today, it's made it possible to even outsource a more varied set of tasks. So for example, if you needed a personal assistant to make all your travel bookings, um, it, it, in, in the old days, you couldn't hire just one person mm -hmm. to do that. It didn't make sense for the BPO providers. But today, you know, with software and a platform and the ability of a manager to remotely manage a resource that on-premise makes it possible, right? I remember, you know, and CAD drawings. There's a group of several BTO companies here that do the CAD drawings for buildings, for tunnels, for whatever, right? I think one of the companies, Andrea, I don't know if you're, you're part of that investor trip. There was one BPO company that was doing uh, radiology reading. So the company here would basically receive x-rays and MRIs. Um, and the doctors in the Philippines who are trained in the U.S. curriculum and U.S. style would basically read um, those x-rays and MRIs, take notations, and then send it back to the hospital or to the doctor. And basically what that did was it freed up the doctor's time, made him more productive, he was able to do more readings. Yeah, so it can be as specialized as that. Yeah. 
And, and just to give context again to our listener, I remember also one thing that I found very interesting is that when we visited a BPO company and that company, let's say, provided service to Uber, for instance, right? And they make the, the room feels like a very Uber office, actually, right? I think it created yeah. that kind of atmosphere that you are part of this company, which I think it was really helpful also to create that ambience, that connection, uh, that commitment to the companies they are serving, yeah? Yeah, I think one of the, one of the harsh realities of BPO, where you're processing a lot of the same things and doing the same thing day in, day out, is, is how to keep the work interesting, fulfilling, etc. And one of the companies we invite, invested in basically said, oh, you know, we might as well make the workplace feel like, and this company was serving a lot of startups and the startup scene, usually it's very exciting. Yeah. You know, non-traditional decorations, <laughs> the office looks nice, there are billiard yeah. tables, ping pong tables, etc. So they said, oh, we might as well make our agents feel like they're an extension or in this case, Uber, right? Um, so the branding in their floor was Uber. It looked like the Uber headquarters. Right. It, it, it led to, I guess, a lot more job satisfaction, less turnover, et cetera. Mm. And I think, as you mentioned, right, this industry is employing young people. So these young people come up with more disposable income, which leads to further, you know, increase in private consumption. And then also even housing, right? Because many of them then yeah. have the purchasing power to buy houses actually, right? Okay. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Um, so the, the BPO workers starting salary or take-home salary is usually one and a half to two times the minimum wage. So, mm. you know, it, it provided more options now for, for graduates, for young graduates to get higher paying jobs than just the minimum wage. I think the other important thing also it did was it made staying in the Philippines an option because prior to the start of the growth of the BPO sector, their only option was to go abroad. I was going to ask that because it reminds me of um, the way in some other countries, for instance, in China, right? Before China had this boom, I think many people would go out of China uh, to find better opportunities. Uh, but then I think starting probably 2005 onwards, there were many what they called the Chinese retur returnees because of the opportunities in China. And I remember, you know, in mid 2005, seven people were still talking about the, the talent drain or brain drain in the Philippines because people were going out to be the OFW overseas foreign workers. Uh, but but I guess the trade-off is that has the BPO in a way cannibalized the OFW, Nori? Has hurt that part or they are still going together providing more opportunities? I think as a, uh, in absolute numbers, maybe you see the same number of deployments abroad as as previously. But as a percentage of the total population, because the population continues to grow, right? It becomes a smaller, a smaller percentage. So it hasn't cannibalized. What I, what I would say is that the uninterrupted growth has led to 
um, companies becoming larger, the environment becoming more exciting here with wealth being created. Actually, there's now people are talking about the brain gain, right? Which is yeah. the opposite of a brain drain. Previously, people were rushing to get out. Today, you see a number of professionals basically coming back in to either start up, uh, do a startup, bring ideas that they learn um, to the Philippines, or mid-level or senior executives coming home eager to apply their experience and their expertise uh, to Philippine companies here. I mean, it's not as if all the 10 million people are going to come back. But that 10 million people, by the way, includes um, immigrants to places like the U.S. who have taken permanent residence um, and some, sometimes even citizenship in, in mm. other countries. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, and I think BGC, which is the kind of the new CBD area in, in Manila, right? I think the, the growth is mostly because of the BPO, is it? Uh, I think what people don't realize is uh, when, when BPO grows, supporting industries also grow. Um, BPO employs a lot of people. Um, a lot of people need a lot of space, office yeah. space. So it, it also leads to a real estate uh, growth in the real estate sector. I guess it's slowing down a little because of the pandemic. People realize, oh, we can work from home. Um, so maybe take up with the space is not going to, but it unmistakably, it, it undoubtedly led to a boom in real estate, both commercial and residential, because people are able to afford now. Um, people don't realize that concentrating a lot of people in an area mean they need to eat. <laughs> they need to be transported in and out of that area. So it grows, it grows uh, F&B retail, it grows transportation. BPO industry, the BPO basically needs good connection. So it's actually resulted in the telco infrastructure improving by, um, by leaps and bounds. Yeah, so it's not just growing by itself, right? There's a lot yeah. of support that needs to grow with yeah. it. And also, I think it drives up some of the standards. You mentioned about the healthcare surface, right? And I would imagine also some of the HR standards uh, have also gone up because of the BPO also. Yeah, a lot of factors have gone up because of this sector. Yeah, I think uh, wages and benefits have gone up. Uh, hiring practices have improved. Retention programs have, have improved. So it, it's led to a lot of improvement, right? In, improvement in skills, improvement in people wanting to learn, therefore wanting to go back to school. Mm. Um, so I think MetNet has been, it's been very good for the country and for individual Filipinos in the BPO sector directly and in supporting industries around it. Mm. And which I think has been proven with the sustained GDP growth of, you mentioned about 5 to 6%, right? In the past, I guess, yeah. 10, 15 years, which is very good uh, for developing countries. Uh, <laughs> now, let's talk a little bit more about the companies in the Philippines, Nori, how would you describe uh, the, the private sectors or the overall the companies in the Philippines? Are they still dominated by the family business? What is the role of state-owned enterprise? What is the mid-size, medium-size um, comp market? Yeah. Uh, are they sizable? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think many of the big businesses continue to be dominated and controlled yes. 
by the old families. And I'll explain that it's, it's changing a little bit, but you can't escape the fact that many of them still control capital. So I think before the development of um, alternative sources or funding, the providers of funds and the buyers of business and the funders of infrastructure were probably one or the other conglomerate. So I think every large conglomerate probably owns a large bank also. So <laughs> even if it was debt capital, it was coming from one of the banks. So I think what's happened over the past few years, at least uh, access to different kinds of capital and sources of capital has expanded for many of the company. But the large infrastructure product usually will still have the old families. The large banks are still owned by huge families. I think it'll be it'll take a lot of time for for that to change. Having said that, I think you'll find a lot of businesses not owned by conglomerates have also thrived and benefited from the uninterrupted growth we were talking about. And maybe just to give an example, when when in, in nineteen ninety nine when I was working out of Hong Kong uh, for a private equity fund, looking for investments in the Philippines, our minimum capital to deploy was $15 million. And at that time, it was so difficult to find companies in the Philippines that could absorb that kind of capital. You would all either end up owning all of it, yeah, um, or the company didn't need that much. Or if it was a business that, that needed it, it was probably a conglomerate to had access to other sources of capital without, you know, having to give you a seat on the board, uh, you know, having to give you answer to, um, or share control with the other shareholders. Um, fast forward later to today, I think that there's so many businesses that can absorb $60 million. In fact, in the last five years, even startups have raised Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, fifty, even a hundred million. There, there's a uh, entertainment company called Kubo, um, but I think has raised a hundred million dollars, almost. Maybe it's eighty. But you know that business is a five-year-old business at best. Wow. So today you can deploy that kind of money into companies here because there are companies of size that you know can. Absorb that kind of That's interesting because even in Indonesia, I remember seven, eight years ago, it was still very difficult to find the $50 million ticket mm-hmm. size for many of the private equity, especially the regional PE firms, right? Because they yeah. cannot just go in a country with 10, 20 million. And even up to now, I think the space that still requires capital would still be in Indonesia, at least about 20 to 30 million, the need of this. Mm-hmm mid-sized companies, right? So it seems that in the Philippines, you actually have many more larger, medium-sized companies in that sense, yeah? I think the, the phenomenon of the startups that can absorb that huge amount of capital is, is a recent phenomenon. Um, I think if you maybe take the hype and the, the hyper growth of these guys and, and, and look at more traditional businesses, I think you'll find that the sweet spot is still Maybe it's not 15 to 20 anymore. Maybe it's 20 to 
to 40 or 20 to 50 even. Mm. Um, and in, in that size, I think there's probably a number of opportunities. I think and as a PE fund, if you want to deploy more capital, then you're probably looking at, uh, at either buyouts or if it's not a buyout, you're looking at providing capital for the investee companies to probably acquire something or to go abroad. And I think anytime you're raising $100 million, then it's probably a game that's open to all the regional funds. So the problem with the Philippines is if you want to do the sweet spot that we talked about of up to $50 million, it's hard to find those companies if you're doing it out of mm. Singapore or Hong Kong headquarters. Right? Um, I guess transparency and uh, currentness of data makes it yeah. hard to find these companies. You really have to be on the ground bound in the streets. But if, if you're investing in companies where $100 million is a ticket, there's probably a process being run by an investment bank. Yeah. You know, things are, are, are all transparent and, and available. But then obviously it becomes more competitive, right? Yeah, yeah. Because um, that, that intermediary is probably showing it to all his favorite yeah. true. Um, client. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, before we move on and talk about uh, Nafigar, one, one question about the political environment, political dynamics, right? I think many people are aware of the political history of the Philippines, uh, the Marcos era, but then I think it had moved on to a democratic country. Can you talk a, a little bit about whether the political environment, what is the impact of the political environment so far to the corporations to the business in the Philippines, if any, Nori? I think because for a long time, the, the Philippines was under certain political structures. I think businesses have learned to navigate, ad navigate adjust to whatever mm -hmm. that prevailing system or sentiment or, or uh, powers are in place at that time. It hasn't, it hasn't really stopped businesses from finding ways to grow. The, the potential impact is greater on businesses that are regulated and that require licenses to operate uh, yeah. because then it's unavoidable that you almost have to deal with whatever ideology system mm. or people that are in place at that point in time, right? So we as a fund don't get involved in those yeah. kinds of industries anyway. But, you know, having said that, people have learned to live with it and people have learned to navigate whatever the prevailing conditions are. Okay. So I think we've seen a lot of improvement in politics and government, you know, but improvement is not always a straight line, right? That's true. Maybe it's yes. a two step forward, two steps forward, one one step back, two steps forward, one step back. <laughs> but at you least know, overall, oh, yeah, at yeah. least you're moving forward right and improving. Yeah. Great. Again, for those who just joined, I'm talking with Honorio Poblador or Nori, the co-founder and, and managing partner of, of Navigar, a Philippine-focused private equity firm. Now let's talk about the PE fund itself. Nori, you started, I think, in 2012, and I believe now you have two PE funds. The first one, Fintech 2012-13, yeah? And then the second, I think, you just raised in 2020, 190 million. 
Now let's step back in time a little bit. Uh, you have a background in bank, private equity, and then in 2011 or 12, I think you decided to set up these PE funds or PE firms with your co-founder, Hafi. What was the rationale? What was the thinking uh, at that time, Nori? Yeah, I, I think um, the idea was really generated as a result of where me and my partner came from. As, as you mentioned, my, my background was more in banking and in, in private equity. I think the frustration for me at that point, and I was looking all, all around Asia, specifically Southeast Asia, my frustration at that point was the difficulty in, in uh, finding private equity opportunities in the Philippines. My co-founder originally was a, uh, was a consultant at BCG. And at some point, he decided he wanted to start the business. And the thing, actually, one of, started one of the first BPO businesses in the Philippines. And of course, starting a business, you need to raise capital to cover up next, build cap, uh, or capex, to build facility. And at that time, he couldn't find an institutional provider of capital. It was too small for Morgan Stanley, or for my private equity fund, bite size minimum at that time. So he had to settle for raising money from um, a collection of, of individuals. And then when he sold that business, he started another business. This time, the funding requirements are too large. By that time, I had, I had come home and was investing my own money, but I didn't have the amount of money he needed because it was a school that he needed to build a campus. So we just looked at each other and said, you know what, what Philippine entrepreneurs really need is say an institutional source of capital that can make decisions and can support an entrepreneur. Not that his investors weren't supportive, but I think having multiple parties who could have different views on, on debt, on growth, on dividends, et cetera. Adds an element of complexity to, to managing the business and having to grow the business. So we felt there was lack of institutional capital. And, you know, we thought, oh, why don't we raise fund and be that source of, of capital? It took us a while to do it because we realized for us to run this as a proper business, the, the fund had to be of a certain size so we could hire a property, cover operating expenses, et cetera. After a while, we managed to do yeah, so we raised the first fund, actually $120 million. People were telling us it was going to be hard to raise a fund, but that, you know, with the support of you guys, IFC and, and others, we were able to raise the fund. Then they said, oh, you'll never be able to deploy the fund. So no companies will, will take your money. We were able to fully invest the fund. And then they said, oh yeah, sure. You've invested in it. Obviously people have taken your money because you're giving it away. And then they said, oh, well, you can't, you can't create value for these companies. And, and the proof of creating value is actually in the exits, right? So they said, oh, you can't exit from these companies. But we managed to exit two of the companies. And then that really provided the basis for us to raise the, the, the second fund. Yeah. Let's talk about your portfolio. Nor if you can give a brief description of the portfolio of your funds, I think that would be useful for the listeners. Yeah. Perhaps for some context, I'll tie it back to how we started this, this podcast, talking yep. about the, the structure of the Philippine economy. Yeah. So for us, we're a Philippine fund. We only make investments in the Philippines. 
So the strategy for us was quite simple. We wanted to be exposed to A, domestic consumption, and B, business services. Uh, because if you're a Filipino-only fund, obviously you should be exposed to things that predominantly drive the economy and the growth in the economy. So our portfolio, I think, reflect those two themes. So in fund one, for example, we have an investment actually in a, in a restaurant chain that operates premium casual dining brands. So we found a business that was the operating brands like Fridays. Today, they operate Denny's, they operate Buffalo Wild Wings, they operate Hard Rock. Um, I guess mostly American brands, although the portfolio also includes Spanish cuisine and Asian brands. So that's, obviously, that's a direct consumption play. The portfolio includes both coffee, which is, I guess you could consider the Philippine equivalent of, of Starbucks operate over a hundred coffee shops all throughout the Philippines and actually last year started open branches through franchising in, in the Middle East, Qatar and, and the UAE specifically. We had a stake in Tascas, which is a BPO company, uh, as I think mentioned, serviced a lot of the venture capital funded startups. We sold that to Blackstone in 2018. We had a company called IntelliCare, which provides MEC health and medical insurance, which we sold also in 2018 to Fullerton Health, an operator of clinics and hospitals in Singapore. And then we own a, a, a cold storage company because, you know, if, if consumption is going to grow, if the standards of consumption are going to improve, then clearly you need the supporting infrastructure to fuel that growth. Or another way to look at it is benefits from that growth, right? Yeah. So that's why we invested in a, in a cool storage company. Fund two, um, it's still the same themes. I think the, the subtle difference is many of the investments we made have a digital angle to it. So, for example, we invested in a company called Great Deals, which, which is an e-commerce enabler. So still a direct consumer play, but it helps brands and companies sell online. We invested in a company called Cloudstaff, still BPO. But BPO catering to SMEs, and you're only able to do that because of the development of the cloud and cloud infrastructure. Investing in a company called MBI Novare, which basically was a traditional system integrator, but now helps companies in the Philippines digitally transform. We serve the two biggest telcos, we serve the largest banks. The last business is direct consumption, no digital angle, but basically a hard discounter like more well-known brand of Aldi and, and Lidl in, in Europe, right? So that's, in a nutshell, the portfolio that we, we put together. 11 companies in 10 years. This year, by the way, Andreas, is, is, Navigar is celebrating its, uh, its 10th year anniversary from the first close of the fund, 2013 to 2023. <laughs> Amazing, yeah, how time flies, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still remember when we did that, that first closing 10 years ago, yeah. I guess, wow. In terms of approaching the companies, Anori, what are the characteristics of the companies that would fit into your strategy? Well, I think it, it has to be a good business with growth mm -hmm. prospects. It has to be a business that we understand. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, that has a business model that's easy to 
understand what levers need to be pulled depending on, on uh, the requirements of the situation. Most importantly, I think it, it needs a good management team or good founders because you know, private equity funds can't really operate businesses. They don't have the bandwidth to do it. Yeah. So, you know, we, most importantly, we look for, we look for good partners, either managers or founders, right? And you are investing uh, minority or majority <laughs> typically? I think because the Philippines is not a very developed private equity market, we needed to be flexible. So if you look at our portfolio, so it's fund one, it was an even split of uh, control and, and minority positions. Fund two, it's more minority, mm. which speaks also to the, to the growth. Growth of the companies. Companies, right? They, yeah. they could, have, could absorb larger amounts of capital without having to give up more of the business. Yeah, but we've had to be flexible. I think a number of our investments were also in combination of fresh capital and some money to allow the founders of the business to monetize some of their through some of their stake and realize the value that they built over twenty or thirty years. Makes sense. But <laughs> so if you invest in this, you know, good business, good founders, which makes sense, then what kind of values that you were able to add to these companies, these already good companies, Nori? Yeah, so you can't lead with capital because if you're a good business, you know, either you don't need the capital yeah. or lots of capital wants to get into that business. Yes. So I think what we found over the last 10 years, at least for the, for the set of companies that, that we like investing in, that where, where we see some meeting of minds between ourselves and the founders, is that they're at the stage where there are certain things they want help with. And, and usually it's, it's in the area of finance, processes, and procedures, right? Oftentimes, many of the companies have grown so quickly that the infrastructure has been left behind because they're focused on shell, 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 shell. Sometimes your back end doesn't keep up. So with many of the companies that we invested in, notwithstanding that they'd grown to a certain size, there wasn't an ERP or the processes weren't fixed. They were doing cash accounting instead of accrual accounting. <laughs> um, so when we say, hey, we'll come in, we'll help you fix that. So it's easier for you to understand the business, track the business, know what improvements you can make. Then it's, it's an easier sell than, oh, we can put $20 million into your business. So yeah, it's usually that it's the value added. It's, it's you know, it the corporate governance that that we bring in. In some cases, the the founders have a a longer term vision of either taking the company public, attracting mm -hmm. a strategic player, and they know it's an easier sell if they have an institutional investor on boards helping them put all those things in place. Or it might be it's, they're already in place, but if you don't have an institutional investor, there'd be a lot of doubt yes. by either the public or, or a foreign company coming in. Right. I think it's a different proposition when they say, oh, private equity has been on your board and your partners for five years. I think it signals that there's transparency, that there's corporate mm -hmm. governance, that the founders can actually work with outside partners. So sometimes that's, that's a value add also. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. Let's talk about the ESG. You talk about the governance. Mm. How about the environmental and social 
aspect of your investment approach, Nori? How do you yeah. implement that with the, in your portfolio companies? Yeah, so uh, majority of our LPs are actually DFIs, and and that's a condition of of taking their investment into the fund. They all have very high ESG standards because you know I, I guess you can do business and you can do business well. So as a requirement, the fund operates with these these ESG standards in place. Uh, and when we make investments, we also want the investee companies to apply or adopt these ESG standards. So typically when we make an investment, we will do legal due diligence, we'll do commercial due diligence, we'll do tax due diligence, we'll do integrity due diligence, and we'll do ESG due diligence. And we've been trained by some of the DFIs, we've been provided with checklists. And as a result of diligence, and as part of the transaction documents and the commitments of, of the companies that we invest in, we basically highlight areas for improvement that they need to commit to. And, you know, the, the expectation is that not all of the ESG practices are in place and there's room for improvement. We won't invest in a company only if they have all of that in place, right? I think... Yeah. Part of the role of the cap of, of capital also is to be transformative capital. And part of that transformation is, is being a little bit more conscious about the environment. Social, here in the Philippines, social use really is around labor conditions. Certainly. And, and making sure that that's in place, right? Rather mm -hmm. than just having a mindset of, oh, I've got to make the most money I can. Who cares what happens yeah. to the workers, the customers, the, the environment? You know, so yeah, it, 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 we take pains to identify where, where there are gaps, where improvements can be made. And as part of the investment, it's a, it's a commitment by the partners to, to improve those shortcomings and plug those gaps. We actually do yearly audit with mm. the companies to make sure that their commitments are being fulfilled. Again, obviously, some, in some cases, you can't do it overnight. It's, in many cases, it's, it's a process. So a process requires certain checkpoints. And, and we make sure that there are checkpoints are in place so that the company li live up to the commitment. Yeah. And I think what you were referring, for instance, in terms of the environment, probably you agree with the company, say, hey, you need to improve your waste management process and then you give them the timeline, right? Let's say one year, one and a half years, and then every year or exactly. so you check their progress. Yeah. Same with the social yeah. in terms of the yeah. labor conditions. How has been the response of this, you know, <clears throat> the potential investor or your portfolio <laughs> companies with engage with them in this ESG discussions? Yeah. Nori, did you <clears throat> feel a lot of them understand, push back, neutral? How has been your experience? I think over the years it's improved. I think in the beginning. Thinking wasn't as developed. Well, obviously, it's, ESG is a big thing now. It applies to public companies also. and talks about it. Everyone talks yeah. about it. The Davos, whatever. So definitely, it's in everyone's consciousness. I think in the beginning when we would talk about it, there was there was a, some set of people who would say, "Oh yeah, it's just for compliance, right? It's yeah, not really important." But I think I can point to several instances where I think it's also proven to be commercially correct. So when we invested in the cold storage company, 
we had talked about alternative energy and renewable energy. One of the biggest costs in cold storage is, is basically electricity. But cold storage facilities are usually big warehouses with a lot of roof space. So one by one, we basically encourage the cold storage company to install solar panels. And actually, the, the solar panels have resulted in a significant amount of saving for the company. So, you know, you're lessening your carbon footprint and then you're saving money. When, when the calculus is like that, then like, I don't even have to be forced <laughs> to do it, right? Yeah. And then I think in, in, in many other cases, it was also, so for example, in a BPO company, many BPOs, for example, because they're servicing offshore location in mm. a different time zone, will require workers to, to work at odd hours. Um, and attrition is a big issue in, in BPO because you know, they aren't easy working condition, but part of the ESG checklist was making sure that there were sufficient sleeping quarters, that you know, workers were taking breaks, that there were programs in place for, for mental health. So that actually resulted in a reduction in attrition. So it makes sense, right? When, when you, I think when you pay attention to the environment, when you pay attention to social consequences of running this, it, it pays its own dividend. Yeah. I think there's a very interesting point there. When you improve that situation, not only you improve the ESG, but it also <laughs> improve the business itself. Now you have lower attrition, which is always good for your business, right? Yeah. In the, in the restaurant space, basically yeah. it's about accrediting suppliers, making sure the suppliers were getting it from ethically sourced vegetable farmers, suppliers that were adhering to food safety. And obviously, I, I think we serve five to 10 million meals a year. And if your supply chain is not checked, yeah. it could result in food sickness, food poisoning or whatever, right? So... You know, that's another example of, hey, you're doing it not just tick a box. You're actually doing it because it helps the business. It prevents, in this case, prevents potential lawsuits and lawsuits. It's part of your risk management, basically. Yeah. 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 So now let's move on a little bit about the, the climate change. As, as I mentioned, this Green Minds podcast is by the student of climate change management and finance at the Imperial College Business School. So I'm wondering in terms of the team itself, the climate change the subject, because, you know, here in UK and Europe, it's a big discussion point, right? Mm. How is climate change perceived in the Philippines? Is that already a common discussion? It's still early. Do companies talk about it? What's your observation, Noreen? I think climate change is where ESG was maybe 10 years ago. Everyone's aware of it. There's no escape from, from the impact of climate change in, in in the Philippines, right? I think Sadly, yes, there, yeah. was, there was a study basically identifying the Philippines as, as one of the, the worst victims of, of climate change. You know, storm seasons have changed, water levels are rising, mm -hmm. temperatures are getting hotter, etc. You're feeling it. So I think it's inescapable. People are, are aware of it. Are they ready now to, to take action? I don't think we're, we're, we're quite there yet. And, you know, to be fair, the, the idea of how to take action is, is developing True. quite speedily as we speak, right? So I think it's in its early days. 
if it's in its early days globally, it's in its earlier days in the Philippines. <laughs> but I'd say there's definitely a lot of awareness about climate change. I'm just not sure if people are ready to ready or able to act on it right away. Yeah. Especially because in many emerging markets, we have higher priority, right? Earlier this week in our class called uh, Mitigating Climate Change, we learned about the impact of agribusiness, agriculture sector to climate change, right? Especially the beef. And one of the key takeaways that we need to reduce the meat consumption, dairy consumption, so we have less needs for, for beef. But if I tie back to my experience in Indonesia, right, we wanted to invest in more of these dairy farms or um, beef farming just because the meat consumption. Protein deficiency. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The protein deficiency is a big issue in Indonesia. You know, yeah, yeah. the World Bank identified that 30%, one third of the children in Indonesia have stunting problem because of the nutrition yeah. deficiency. So how do you make a trade off, right? Very so far, nice. Yeah, we import a lot of this meat, milk from Australia, which becomes expensive. We need to lower down the cost. Uh, but it's such a, a, a conflicting issue, if you will, between yeah. fulfilling your main needs, but also climate change. Yeah, right? I, I think you're right. You know, there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? I guess yeah. to, to draw <laughs> a, a parallel. There are things as a developing country you need to, to take care of first, and maybe you don't have the luxury. I mean, I think what people realize is you can't say I don't have the luxury of addressing that because if you don't address it now, it's really going to come back to bite you sooner yes. rather than later, right? Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe it's a willingness. Ability maybe is the more uh, the pressing problem. The ability to do anything about it. Um, moving on a little bit about Impact investment, what is your view on the impact investment itself, Nori? Or to be specific, how do you see yourself doing impact investment in the Philippines through your investments with Navigar? I think for us, when we think about impact, and when we talk about impact, I think the, the biggest impact we can make today is actually creating employment. So it's, it's the most basic of, of impact, right? You know, the, we, we talked about the perfect demographic pyramid and how theoretically having the pipeline of productive workers. I mean, the productivity can only come to fruition if you provide jobs. Yes. Uh, so I think for us, the biggest impact we can make at this point and, and lowest hanging fruit is, is, is providing jobs. So I think we're at the stage where that's how we're thinking about impact. Which I think really makes sense. I have this discussion with many of my <laughs> classmates um, because I think some of us would define impact investment is very specific to solve certain problem of the world, right? Uh, I think even just creating jobs, creating good paying, sustainable jobs actually yeah. would be able to lift many people from poverty, which I think it's probably one of the greatest impacts that you can have in the society, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah. Just to, to close on this one, I'm interested with your exits. Nori, you mentioned you have these two exits already, right? <clears throat> Intel, us yeah. and IntelliCare. Would you share a little bit about the process? Why did you think at the time it was time to exit? How did it come about? I think that would be interesting to know. Yeah. I, I think when we invested in, for example, Taskas, the, the founders had a very clear goal. 
Hmm. And they said, when we get to this EBITDA, we want to attract a bigger buyer, okay. a bigger institutional investor that can then lead us to grow faster and, and hopefully lead us to a path towards a listing. We grew so fast and we achieved. In fact, when we started talking about the exit, the acceleration of EBITDA was happening so fast that we exceeded the target that they had for themselves. So it was a clear signal. Okay, that was the target. Now that we've achieved it, now that we've surpassed it, it's time to exit. So we ran a process. We hired an investment bank. We went very wide uh, and we received a lot of interest, both from larger private equity funds and, and strategic buyers. So yeah, I, I think it, it was a very interesting asset because of the type of services they were doing for the type of clients that they were serving. And, you know, obviously say the growth and, and, and profitability. Yeah, in, in, in healthcare, basically, we had not yet achieved the target mm. in our plan, but it was a very interesting sector to many foreign operators wanting to come into the Philippines. And because there was a price war and, and a fight for market share, the profit numbers actually took a, took a dip and we weren't ready to sell, but we were approached by someone and said, look, we know, we know what's happening. Yes, profits are low this year, but we're strategic. We want to get into this market. And if we're willing to pay for normalized earning two years down the road, would you consider an exit? So, I mean, in, in private equity, the, the business is really... Invest, create value, exit, return money. Right? Yeah. And because there was a good opportunity to do that, then it, it was clear. The decision to, to exit was very clear from that perspective. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. One last question. What have you found the most rewarding aspect of this career in private equity, Marie? I think I think it's always... When you come into a company, you always make the promise of helping them improve and create yeah. value. And I think the best, most fulfilling, best, most fulfilling thing for me is when you actually can look your partners in the eye and say, oh, I've left this investment much better than it was when I came in. Right. So yeah, for me, that's, that's very fulfilling for me. Yeah. I, I can sense that. That's such a great insight on that. So, Nori, thank you very much for your time. This is a really, really interesting, insightful discussion. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me, Andrea. I hope it's useful to the listeners. For sure, it is. Thank you. Okay. Well, that is for now. Thanks for listening. And I really hope that you will get a chance to come and experience the Philippines one day. The country has many beautiful places and the people are very friendly. I'm sure my classmate from the Philippines, Laura, will second this. Anyway, until next time, and I hope that your coming days will be filled with interesting stories and opportunities. Thank you.